This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we are delighted to welcome to this program Roger Helmer from Great Britain, a firm supporter of the U.S.-U.K. special relationship, a great friend of Israel and Jewish communities around the world, and a principal leader who has addressed the concerns of the rise of socialism in the West. He's a stalwart addressing the significance of energy security and addressing what some may call the climate socialism agenda and how politicians and special interest groups are waging a battle from the commanding heights to impose draconian directives and measures adversely impacting citizens and private enterprises and most importantly, poor countries around the world. Roger Helmer served in the political arena as a member of the European Parliament, representing the United Kingdom, and serving in the Conservative and the UK parties, respectively. He has worked with several multinational companies, including Procter & Gamble, National Semiconductor, Reader's Digest, and Guinness PLC. Well, good morning, Roger. Good morning, Natasha. Hi, Joe. It's great to be with you again. Good morning, Roger. It's great to hear your voice. Roger, the Wall Street Journal editorial board this past week relayed these words. I quote, It's incongruous, bordering on the bizarre to organize a summit like this while Europe is battening down for a winter fuel crisis. President Biden is begging OPEC to produce more oil. China is firing up its coal-fueled power plants amid an electricity shortage. And climate change plans wilt as soon as they're exposed to the sunlight of democratic politics. No matter. This summit is called COP26 because there have already been 25. No less than the United Nations admitted this week that nations have made little progress on their previous climate pledges. But rather than adjust to this political reality, the delegates will make even more unrealistic promises, unquote. Roger, over 400 private jets flew into Glasgow. And what are your thoughts about this major gathering in Scotland, the United Kingdom, and working to propose a new slate of punitive and unrealistic policies? Well, the, the irony and the hypocrisy have been covered in in great detail, to see President uh, Biden, uh, after his hostility to fossil fuels and his refusal uh, to sanction new drilling and oil pipelines and so on, uh, now pleading with other countries like Russia to provide more fossil fuels. Uh, I mean, you really, you really couldn't make it up. And the other, the other point is that they've got hundreds of private jets uh, that have flown in. So while they're lecturing ordinary people that they mustn't fly and mustn't do this and mustn't do that and must eat less meat, uh, they don't seem to be bothered by those concerns. So I think that aspect has been covered. Um, but what I'd like to say is that we're dealing here with virtually all the countries in the world. 
Now, let's admit that it is difficult to take all those people around the table and get any kind of consensus. But I think the problem here is you have such widely divergent views. First of all, you've got the the Western governments and Western economies who seem to be wedded with an almost religious zeal uh, to the uh, climate catastrophe cult, as as I might call it. Um, You've then got developing countries um, like China, particularly India, to an extent Russia, even some of the Eastern European countries, who know perfectly well uh, that the development of their economies really depends on fossil fuels. They know they can't just give up entirely on coal and oil in short order, as they're being asked to do. So they're trying to make the right noises, uh, but at the same time uh, protect their position, protect their economies, protect their people, which is fair enough. The third group, though, and this I think is very interesting, is the smaller, poorer countries, um, many of them island communities, who've latched onto this story. Now, I don't know to what extent their concerns about climate change are genuine. I suspect they're not very genuine. I think their main focus is money. They are asking for huge sums of money. They are, as I would say, laying a guilt trip on Western economies. It was our fault. We started the Industrial Revolution. We have done all this terrible damage. Uh, Never mind that capitalism and fossil fuels have dragged billions out uh, out of poverty in the last 30 or 40 years. They see a chance to get a lot of money out of us, uh, and uh, uh, we saw the commitment to a uh, hundred billion uh, U.S. dollars a year. Well, that certainly not happened. Um, but I think their primary objective is money. That's what they're trying to do. Now, given those uh, three very disparate points of view, uh, I think the chances of achieving the sort of results. Uh, that Boris Johnson and uh, and President Biden want uh, are very limited indeed. Right. Roger, uh, let me read a few lines from the website of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, where it says, uh, Greenhouse gases trap heat and make the planet warmer. The largest source of greenhouse gas emissions from human activities in the United States is from burning fossil fuels for electricity, heat, and transportation. Greenhouse gas emissions from transportation primarily come from burning fossil fuel for our cars, trucks, ships, trains, and planes. Now, Joe Biden committed in Glasgow conference, also known as COP26, that the U.S. will cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent from the 2005 levels to 2030. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, U.S. emissions in 2019 were about 13% below 2005 levels, and they were projected to be down to 21% in 2020, which can be mostly attributed to the COVID pandemic. Now, Roger, are we supposed to endure life in a perpetual coronavirus lockdown so that we minimize emission of greenhouse gases, while, as you mentioned, the hypocrisy, while elites will continue to pollute the planet by crisscrossing the world, flying on jets to international meetings in order to discuss climate change? Well, indeed. Um, The Environment Agency is is telling you that uh, transportation and all these things are a big proportion of man-made emissions. What they don't say is that man-made emissions are only about 4% 
uh, of the global climate cycle. There's carbon absorbed by plants, emitted by plants, decaying, volcanoes, and so on. So there is a huge cycle between the Earth uh, and the atmosphere, and indeed the sea, the oceans, uh, of uh, CO2. Uh, and human activity is only a small part of that. Um, but the solutions that are being proposed uh, in America, in Europe, in Britain, um, are definitely going to cost eye-watering sums of money. And I think what we need to do, if we have reservations about this program, what we need to do is press for good analyses of the cost. What is it actually going to cost uh, the ordinary family in America, in, in Britain, in Europe? It will cost vast amounts. I mean, we're talking in Britain about mandating change of uh, domestic heating from gas central heating uh, to heat pumps, uh, which uh, most people say are not terribly effective, uh, but also will cost, by the time you've bought the heat pump, installed it, uh, changed all the pipework in the house, possibly installed underfloor heating, done all sorts of new insul insulation, you're looking at the order of twenty to thirty thousand pounds, so may say thirty to forty thousand dollars. For the average family, that's, that's uh, an enormous hit. Uh, and as people like to say here, nobody voted to be poorer and colder. But that is what we are being told uh, that we have to do. And I think what we want is a serious pushback based on the cost um, to ordinary people, the cost to consumers, the cost to voters and householders. When they see that, uh, I think attitudes will change radically. Of course, if you go out on the street, stop a few people and say, do you think we should be taking action to save the planet? Of course, they will say yes, because they've been subjected to massive propaganda about the disaster uh, of the climate catastrophe. If you then say, well, this is going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars a year, year after year, indefinitely, you personally will have to pay this money. Um, then their attitudes change. Oh, no, we want the government to do it. The government can pay for it. We don't want to pay for it. When it gets through, and, and thank heaven for democracy, the reason democracy works is because eventually, in democratic countries, governments have to pay attention to the people. Uh, and we are seeing in Britain now, I think, the stirrings of opposition. The government is cheerfully following its net zero program, uh, but people are starting to realize what the fearful cost of this is going to be. And there is going to be big resistance to it. All they're going to achieve, they're never going to get to net zero emissions. Uh, what they're going to get to is net zero credibility if they go on as they are. Uh, Roger, I mean, America's and British taxpayers have been losing on all fronts with the climate change regulations. Uh, firstly, American and British energy intensive businesses moved to China to avoid domestically imposed climate change regulation. So we lost jobs, tax revenues, economic growth, and kept world pollution at the same or increased level. And now we're supposed to foot the bill to help China and other countries reduce pollution. In the midst of it is also rising prices of energy, which are hurting our economies. Where do we go from here? Well, first we need to, to understand the reality here. Uh, I mean, I get very annoyed when I hear politicians in, in Britain, but I'm sure you get the same in America and we get the same in Europe. Politicians saying, well, look, we've made a great start. We've reduced emissions since 1990 or since 
2,000 or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and the answer to that is, no, you haven't reduced emissions. You have merely exported your emissions to other countries. And as you rightly say, Natasha, with those emissions that we have exported, we've exported jobs and profitability and so on. Uh, and while I, I, I hold no particular brief for China, I have to say that you know we've thrown it at them. In the worst case, uh, I see us ceding global hegemony to China without even a fight. In fact, without even realizing what we're doing about it. And being no doubt, China sees itself as the, the leading number one nation of the 21st century. Uh, and we are cooperating with them uh, in handing over control of the world, in effect, to China. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're, they're investing in around the world, countries, ports, universities, academia, everywhere you turn, you find Chinese investment, the Chinese pushing their program forward, the Belt and Road Initiative, all those things. Um, and as I say, we can't blame them. We, we've almost invited them to do it. And, and that is, I think, a very real concern. Right. And as you mentioned, China, uh, Roger, uh, Biden pledged to increase U.S. commitment to help developing countries deal with the effects of climate change with a total amount of $11 billion annually. And since China is considered the largest developing country in the world and the largest polluter, it obviously needs Biden's help to reduce the effects of climate change. And it appears that Biden is committing to send billions of U.S. taxpayers' dollars to China. And by the way, Biden's son Hunter has business dealings in China, <laughs> which are benefiting the entire Biden family. China has just test-launched, uh, we, we are told, the reports say, test-launched a hypersonic missile, uh, which is capable of circling the globe before it hits its target, is capable of carrying nuclear weapons, and which, according to the reports I've read, uh, is very difficult to stop. Our existing uh, anti-missile defenses uh, are not really well-placed to deal with that threat. These are the people that we're going to go and give money to. I mean, what has happened to us? Mm. Think of the Second World War. I was born during the Second World War. We didn't go to Hitler in in 1936 and say, have some more money. And by the way, if, if you happen to spend it on building up the Luftwaffe, we won't notice. Uh, uh, and yet we're doing that now. It, it is absolutely heartbreaking to see the folly of it all. Uh, I mean, help to the Maldives is one thing, although I'm not sure that they need it uh, when they're, they're building amazing resort hotels next to the beach. Um, but help to China. India has a nuclear program and a space program. Uh, we're going to give them help to doing these things. The fact is, in China's case, they are reportedly building, commissioning uh, several new coal-fired, several new coal-fired power stations a week. Uh, and bear in mind, those power stations, they're not building them for a year or for five years. Uh, if you build that sort of investment in a coal-fired power station, you expect it to continue working for 40, 50 years. So, frankly, you can whistle for net zero before 2080 because those coal-fired power stations in China will still be blasting away by then. Roger, in last week's Newsweek article, a piece titled The Wind Turbine Failures Behind Europe's Energy Crisis are a warning for America. And I quote, 
The situation across the Atlantic may provide a warning for the U.S. with President Joe Biden having set a goal to decarbonize the nation's power grid by 2035 and the whole U.S. economy by 2050. Decarbonizing the power grid will involve a transition to renewable energy sources such as wind and solar power, which can be less reliable than traditional fossil fuels. Europe's recent experience with wind turbines could be instructive for the United States. The crisis has come amid a 20% reduction in output in the wind power sector and rising costs of oil and gas, as reported by Forbes. It further states, more expensive energy will affect the development potential for billions of people around the world, and particularly in Africa. The refusal of Europeans to make cheap energy available will lead to massive migration movements in the future, unquote. Roger, why have we not seen a push for nuclear energy in the West? Well, Joel, uh, absolutely, we should be doing that. Uh, Now, I wouldn't say that it isn't happening at all. Um, Here in Britain, the government is allocating money to small modular reactors. It is proposing to commit to one, um, uh, dare I say, old-fashioned, very large uh, nuclear power station. Uh, So there is some work being done on it. uh, And we have a British company, Rolls-Royce, that produces small nuclear reactors for submarines, for example. Um, uh, It can be done. It should be done faster. We know there's work going on with uh, fusion, nuclear fusion, uh, which may be the future. But that, Joel, brings us to a critical point, and that is this, that there are new technological developments which will in themselves reduce CO2. Now, I'm not saying that's our primary objective to reduce CO2, but I envisage that in 30 or 40 years' time, the energy environment will be totally different. We will be able to supply all our energy needs without using what by then will be old-fashioned technologies. Uh, So this is a problem which, in a sense, if it is a problem, and I question whether it's a problem, but if it is a problem, it is a problem which will solve itself because technology is moving on rapidly. And uh, I love to quote that line from from, uh, one of the old uh, um, Gulf states uh, oil ministers. He said, The Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. Uh, And I don't think the fossil fuel age will end because we've run out of fossil fuels. The fossil fuel age will end when we have better and more economic technologies uh, and we have a pretty good idea of where those are coming from. But they are not wind and they are not solar. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we've been joined by Roger Helmer, who served in the political arena as a member of the European Parliament, representing the United Kingdom and serving in the Conservative and the UKIP parties, respectively. In fact, he has also served with several multinational companies, including Procter & Gamble, National Semiconductor, Reader's Digest, and other companies. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Roger. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. 
America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.